Thank you all very much. Thank you, Mr. Grodi, for the introduction. Thank all of you for being here. Uh, I want to thank my fellow speakers for their wonderful presentations that we've had so far. I uh, want to thank everyone responsible for helping organize this conference and uh, all the hard work that I know has gone into that. And also thank all of you who have attended and have persevered uh, to this hour of the afternoon. Uh, it's great that everyone is still awake. Uh, you may not be after I start talking. Uh, it's, it's very appropriate, my topic, I think, in a, t a conference honoring Dr. Carroll, uh, because one of the texts I'm going to be discussing is G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. And as Dr. O'Donnell noted this morning, uh, that was one of Dr. Carroll's uh, very favorite works. It's also a work uh, that is part of the history curriculum here at Christendom. It's part of our core curriculum. And so every Christendom student is at least supposed to read The Everlasting Man. Um, <laughs> We have some of our alumni here. They can tell you whether they do or not. Um, so that's very appropriate. Uh, David Jones, on the other hand, is a poet whom I don't think Dr. Carroll had ever heard of. Um, but if he had read his poetry, I think he would have liked it. And I suspect they're having a good discussion about it in heaven right now. So uh, with that in mind, I'm going to proceed to discuss with you briefly today theologies of history in G.K. Chesterton and David Jones. The great Thomist philosopher Jacques Maritain once remarked that the best historian is a poet. T.S. Eliot, whose own poetry buttresses Maritain's claim, further defined this principle in his discussion of the historical sense that he believed all art requires. And Eliot defined the historical sense thus, a sense of the timeless, as well as of the temporal and of the timeless and the temporal together. These two critics, Maritain and Eliot, claimed history as the poet's province in their time due to what they perceived to be the abdication by modernist historians of the responsibility to fuse the particular and the general, the matter and meaning of history into a coherent pattern. Under the influence of positivism and the Ronkian injunction to write history as it happened, contemporary historians took as their models the likes of David Hume and were content to chronicle events objectively without feeling obliged to comment on their metaphysical significance, being passionately opposed, in fact, to such musings. G.K. Chesterton joins the criticism of such an approach when he writes in The Everlasting Man that so long as we reject this subjective side of history, which may be more simply called the inside of history, there will always be a certain limitation on that science which can be better transcended by art. So long as the historian cannot do that, fiction will be truer than fact. Now, one poet whose work embodies this historical sense is David Jones, particularly in his masterpiece, The Anathemata. Jones seeks to demonstrate the unity of all history from before the emergence of Homo sapiens to the present 
and to assess its significance against an eternal backdrop. Such is also Chesterton's intention in The Everlasting Man. While a work of prose about history, The Everlasting Man escapes the perceived pitfalls of modern scientific history by be de being decidedly countermodern and unscientific, or at least unscientistic, in its assumptions and arguments. Rather than neglecting the subjective and timeless elements of history, Chesterton makes them essential to his interpretations. More specifically, examining these two works reveals that Chesterton and Jones share a theology of history arising from their Catholicism, one centered on Christ and his crucifixion, the pivotal person and event in history to them. This belief provides a focal point to which they relate all other persons, events, rites, and myths. In making these connections, the two writers simultaneously defend the value of tradition and continuity while stressing the qualitative difference made by Christ. In addition, their view of history explains to them the eternal youth of the Catholic Church, as well as its ability to persist historically. Finally, their common contention that all things rhyme in Christ leads them to assert the unique abilities of Christianity to synthesize reason and imagination, as well as to limit the scope of historical subjects while simultaneously expanding their substance. In short, Chesterton's and Jones's Catholicism leads them to agree with Eliot that history is a pattern of timeless moments, one that takes its shape from Christ's redemptive sacrifice. Their shared view of history demands attention, for it is a principal facet of Chesterton's and Jones's faith-based rebellions against the intellectual assumptions and opinions of modernity, but one hitherto unexplored. Both Chesterton and Jones believed throughout most of their lives in the importance of a theology of history. Rejecting the modernist assumption that history can teach us nothing, either due to the inherently progressive nature of humans or the radically changed environment of modern times. Both Chesterton and Jones argued that continuity with the past was possible and was indeed vital for a complete understanding of human nature and possibilities. Yet, they believed, these continuities cannot be made sense of solely from within time. Because people are destined for eternity, even while rooted in the temporal, their lives and actions have a dual significance, which only a theological position can clarify. As Russell Hittinger has written, a theology of history is precisely the reliance on a theologic the whole story is neither completely caused nor measured by men. <laughs>
Moreover, as Jones argued, a theological outlook is the only guarantee that this story will have a happy ending. Jones said this, if we open all the cupboards and bring out all the skeletons and consider the frustrations which all history, past and present, offers as a pattern, we are compelled, if we wish to presume to a shadow of optimism, to point to the necessity of other world values. Both Jones and Chesterton derived those transcendent values from their Catholicism. For as Christopher Dawson, himself a close friend of Jones, put it, every Christian has his philosophy of history given in his religion. He cannot make a new one for himself. And since Catholic Christians especially stress the sacramental significance of the internal becoming incarnate in time, they are particularly prone to such reflections, believing that history has become theology in Christianity. Now, although Catholic theologies of history date to St. Augustine's The City of God, Aidan Nichols points out that the early 20th century, when Chesterton and Jones were writing, as well as Donalu and de Lubach, that in the early 20th century, this was a period of Christian interest in the theology of history of an intensity unprecedented since patristic times. And so in the Anathemata and the Everlasting Man, Jones and Chesterton expressed their participation in this outburst in remarkably similar terms. Given their desire to establish continuity, they need to demonstrate that there is some trait that all humans, but only humans, have shared in all times and all places. Not surprisingly, for two former art students, both Chesterton and Jones had studied art in their younger days, they both focus on the human capacity for art, for making. Both, in fact, use cave drawings as evidence that from the earliest days of the species, people, and only people, have sought to represent nature under other forms. Chesterton claims that art is the signature of man, and that these particular pieces of art, these cave paintings, are, quote, testimony to something that is absolute and unique, that belongs to man and to nothing else except man, that is a, is a difference of kind and not a difference of degree. A monkey does not draw clumsily and a man cleverly. A monkey does not begin the art of representation and man carry it to perfection. A monkey does not do it at all. He does not begin to do it at all. He does not begin to begin to do it at all. <laughs> A line of some kind is crossed before that first faint line can begin. 
Jones also stresses the representational manner of cave drawings, particularly the famous uh, discoveries at Lascaux, and argues that the making of such forms belongs only to man. And he puts that insight poetically as follows. And see how they run, the juxtaposed forms brightening the vaults of Lascaux, how the linear is wedded to volume, how they do within, in an unbloody manner, under the forms of brown hamite and black magnes, on the grave lime face, what is done without, far on the windy tundra, at the kill, that the kindred may have life. Because people alone possess free will, and are thus liberated from the determining power of instinct. They can uniquely express gratuitous intention, which for Jones is the foundation of all art. Only humans can choose to make something beautiful for the sole purpose of delight, rather than just what is needed by the standards of efficiency. Hunting then, for humans, can be ritualistic, and iconic, rather than being a mere animal act of subsistence. Now as this passage and analysis imply, Jones sees this natural artistic sense that all people share closely connected to a religious sacramental purpose, a belief Chesterton shared. For Chesterton, the impulses behind art and religious worship are essentially the same and they exist only in humans. As he writes, these natural experiences and even natural excitements never do pass the line that separates them from creative expression like art and religion in any creature except man. It was unique and could make creeds as it could make cave drawings. David Jones likewise declared that the art of man is essentially a sign-making or sacramental activity because, he continues, the principle implicit in the making of a work that is essentially extra-utile, a representing of something other. The employment of corporeal, material things as a signification of something, quite apart from utilitarian values, the very essence of the artist's job is clearly also the principle presupposed in the sacraments of religion. This common showing forth of the invisible realities behind visible signs is something that humans, being unique mixes of spirit and matter, are alone equipped to produce. As Jones concludes, the incorporeal intelligences, the angels, are incapable of art. 
and the animals are incapable of art. It is we alone of all creation that are capable of art, of sign, of sacrament. Practice of the visual arts was only the foremost common human characteristic that Chesterton and Jones shared a belief in. In addition, they thought that people have the distinctive traits of celebrating certain rites or ceremonies and of explaining the rationale for these artistic endeavors and ceremonies through myths. Because only humans have the powers of speech and fancy, only they can tell stories and attempt to explain their world imaginatively. Like any art form, this one also has a religious function. Chesterton and Jones both argue that most myths, whether they are ancient fertility sagas, classical Greek tales like the Iliad and the Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, or Mallory's rendering of their Arthurian legend, all of these myths to them have had the common purpose of explaining the ways of the divine to humans and have often involved the salvific death of a god or a heroic god figure. Chesterton asserts that all people have believed that the divine secret has sometimes broken bonds and surged into our world. And Jones's panoramic inclusion of most human mythology in the Anathemata testifies to his concurrence in this belief. Both writers, then, Chesterton and Jones, accepting notion akin to C.S. Lewis's idea of the Tao, the common will and common reason of humanity, branching out as the situation varies into ever new beauties and dignities of application. Yet both authors agree with Lewis that the Tao needs a single center which for them is Christ crucified. Chesterton writes in The Everlasting Man that the cross is the crux of the whole matter, believing that it centers all the many human activities of history. Similarly, Jones explains that in the course of writing the anathemata, I had occasion to consider the tree of the cross as the axial beam round which all things move. The implications of that premise for Jones's and Chesterton's interpretation of history is described bracingly by another poet, Guy Davenport. The purpose of the evolution of the world was to raise the hill Golgotha grow the wood for the cross, form the iron for the nails, and develop the primate species Homo sapiens for God to be born a member of. Christ, his cross, and the Eucharist that bloodlessly recreates and represents his passion become the meeting point for all human history, people, events, myths, and rites.
They are the standard by which redemptive inclusion in the Tao is determined. For example, both Jones and Chesterton see the tales of a dying god or hero whose sacrifice is ultimately fruitful and redemptive as prefiguring or puppeting Christ. Whether they are the agricultural deities or comparatively recent literary figures like Hector, Arthur, or Roland. Moreover, Jones and Chesterton also emphasize rites of commemoration involving natural products like bread and wine. In particular, Jones uses Melchizedek's sacrifice to assert that the new covenant of Christ was present even before the old one had been made with Abraham. Jones writes, Levites, the new rite holds, is here, before your older rites begin. Yet as suggestive of Christianity as all these forerunners are, Chesterton and Jones insist that they cannot be considered equivalent to Christianity. Chesterton writes, there is no comparison between God and the gods, for the latter are only partial truths, hints of what is fulfilled in Christ. And Chesterton continues, they satisfy some of the needs satisfied by a religion. Notably, the need for doing certain things at certain dates. The need of the twin ideas of festivity and formality. But though they provide a man with a calendar, they do not provide him with a creed. The pre-Christian myths and rites are not wrong. They're simply insufficient. It is in Christianity, then, that the completion of the incomplete is achieved. Myths are an imaginative outline of truth, an extra revelational body of tradition. Because what in pre-Christian times was mere myth becomes, when Christianized, the revelation of mystery. This qualitative change occurs due to the unique nature of Christ, his death, and the rites and church he founds. Because Christ is God rather than a God, his incarnation closes the deposit of revelation. His gospel is truth, the last word on all subjects. As Chesterton puts it, after Christ, nobody else has any good news. <laughs> For the simple reason that nobody else has any news. Additionally, Christ's sacrificial death is followed by his resurrection, whereas other lords like Kronos, Owain, and Arthur, remain asleep 
entombed in their efficacious asylums. Christ the Lord has risen. Further, the Mass and Eucharist Christ institutes are not merely commemorations to a Catholic, but actual recreations of his passion. In each Mass, Christ is really present, just as he was in the Cenacle or on Calvary. As Jones puts it, he is at once the sacrifice and the feast, making permanent, kindly, acceptable, and valid his continuous interaction with time following his ascension to eternity. Finally, the church itself also lives in a permanent state of what Jones calls nowness, as though its foundation has just happened. And in a sense, it has, for each Eucharist represents the church's foundational acts. When Christ becomes directly present, as he was in 33 AD, eternity interpenetrates and temporarily suspends history, giving the church its timeless sense of time, the pattern by which it weaves the timeless moments of history. The horizontal flow of events is intersected by a vertical judgment, which is an instant impregnation of time with eternity, the filling up of time with Christ. By belonging to another world, the church can be in this world, but not of it, and thus avoid the decay that all purely natural things suffer. As Chesterton says, the church grows younger as the world grows old. And that eternal youth of the church is further dramatized by its remarkable persistence. In the beginning of the Anathemata, Jones describes a priest celebrating mass in World War II Britain, calling him this man so late in time, curiously surviving, in the post-Christian world. Chesterton thinks that it is not so much a question of survival, but revival. For in his view, the church has not survived. It has returned again and again in this Western world of rapid change and institutions perpetually perishing. It has died many times but not remained dead, for it is founded on life himself, the one who could not be killed and who conquered death. In Chesterton's luminous phrase, it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. The church endures because it is constantly being reborn. These substantial differences caused by the revolution of Christ, this Christian view of history, produce critical cultural consequences. In particular, 
Chesterton and Jones focus on two principles they find unique to Christianity, one of integration and one of limitation. Initially, they believe that Christianity united philosophy and mythology for the first time. Whereas in the ancient world, myth and religion were considered one thing and philosophy quite another, as departed myth left ravished fact. Christianity rhymed these two roads to truth due to its historicity. As C.S. Lewis put it, only in Christ did myth become fact. Myth became fact. Jones points out the revolutionary implications of this shift from mythological to historical consciousness by declaring that Christ and Christianity reverse the normal process of folk memory, which we know tends to mythologize history. Now it is rather the mythological pattern that is embodied in historical fact. It is the very reverse of the old rites. None of the pagan myths claimed to be histories, but the Gospels ground their validity in being accurate accounts of actual events. The former are stories that contain truths, but only the latter is a true story, thus combining the philosophical search for truth with the mythological desire to tell tales in what Chesterton terms the philosophy of stories. And he defines that this way. The Catholic faith is the reconciliation because it is the realization of both mythology and philosophy. It is a story, and in that sense, one of a hundred stories. Only it is a true story. It is a philosophy and in that sense, one of a hundred philosophies. Only it is a philosophy like life. Jones further elaborates on this opinion, maintaining Christianity to be not merely a repetition of the natural myths, but the only true myth. Being glad that Christianity is a Hellenistic as much as a Judaic religion. Yahweh and the Logos are the same God. Even as Christianity's historicity provided an integrative and expansive view of truth for its adherents, though, that same quality, its historicity, set limits on its subject matter. Whereas a myth could be about anything, the gospel is about one thing, the life of Jesus Christ as he lived in a particular place at a particular time. Jones illustrates the effects of Christianity's commitment to the limit of events in his description of the Christmas liturgy's gospel reading. This is in the Old Mass. At the word voluntatus, which ends the reading, the deacon, 
however much he would wish to continue proclaiming his wonder tale, he must break off the recitation of this true historia and be silent. No embellishment of this wonderful tale, the gospel, is allowed, for that would violate its integrity as a true history. While this fidelity to facts may appear needlessly restrictive, both Chesterton and Jones thought limits were liberating. In this particular case, Chesterton argues that limiting the gospel to this one man's story actually fosters a universal tale because Christ, quote, spoke of his own humanity as in some way collectively and representatively human, calling himself simply the son of man. That is, in effect, simply calling himself man. In a further paradox, and what would we be without Chesterton's paradoxes? In a further paradox, this limit makes the gospel expansive enough to, to meet the twin demands of mythology and philosophy. Because Christ is the archetype made typic, he touches both sides of the human mind and covers, quote, that abyss that nothing but an incarnation could cover, a divine embodiment of our dreams. That is why the ideal character had to be a historical figure. But that is also why the historical figure had to be the ideal character. Thus, Chesterton and Jones find the historical character of Christianity to be crucial in both expanding their horizons and limiting their vision. A Christian theology of history gives them a defined pattern with which to stitch the various elements of the Tao together into a many-colored, yet seamless garment, a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. As Chesterton put it, the union which the church effected was not a dilution. It united the worlds of poetry and philosophy. It leagued the natural and the supernatural against the anti-natural and all the components were strengthened by this combination. Adopting this Christian theology of history put Chesterton and Jones out of the cultural mainstream of their times, and both conceived of their masterpieces as being conscious acts of intellectual and cultural rebellion against modernity. The Everlasting Man was Chesterton's culminating direct response to and attempted refutation of the progressive evolutionary secularism of H.G. Wells's The Outline of History. For his part, Jones saw the anathemata as a repudiation of the cultural consequences of what he termed the modernist break with tradition and what he considered its devastating implications for art and religion. 
And part of that renunciation was an anti-progressivism similar to Chesterton's. Yet in dissenting from what they regarded as the modern norm, Chesterton and Jones were affirming another standard, one founded on what they believed to be the permanent things. Christ, his cross, the Eucharist, and the church. Adhering to this outlook permitted them to intellectually affirm their heartfelt devotion to tradition, the continuity and integrity of human events, myths, and rites, while simultaneously expressing their belief in the qualitative difference made by Christ and his act of redemptive love, what Chesterton called the one real crack across the pavement of time that came from the earthquake of the crucifixion. Their shared theology of history explained to them the unique character of the Roman Catholic Church and its remarkable historical persistence. The eternal perspective of this worldview gave them a broadening synthesis of reason and imagination, as well as a means of limiting the matter of history while expanding its meaning. This order that they found in Christianity and used as the standard to judge modernity lacking, met their need for an all-embracing cosmology that appreciated tradition. All these factors illustrate the vitality that Jones and Chesterton found in Catholicism and help explain why they would have deliberately chosen to convert to a faith that was socially marginalized and considered intellectually irrelevant by the cultural mainstream of their day. As Chesterton put it, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Their conversions help them to be rebels by giving them a dynamic cause. The crisis of meaning that Chesterton and Jones found solved by the Catholic Church persists. It was behind the lamentations of Maritain and Eliot as they perceived a renewed divorce between mythology and philosophy. To all these critics, the modernist sundering of what Christianity had brought together ended a fruitful union and laid the land waste. If George Steiner is correct, that realistic remythologization in a time which has found agnostic secularization more or less unendurable, may in the future be seen as the defining spirit of the age. And if Jeffrey Pearl is right in saying that personal fictions, private solutions, are by definition tentative, piecemeal, and partial, the unity and transcendence of the Christian theology of history that myth which is a fact, that story which is a true story, may help ask the questions upon which restoration of the living waters depends. Perhaps, as the everlasting man and the anathemata claim, it will also answer them. For as John Henry Newman put it, anticipations or reminiscences of his glory haunt the mind of the self-sufficient sage and of the pagan devotee.
He condescends, though he gives no sanction, to the altars and shrines of imposture. And he makes his own fiat the substitute for its sorceries. Even on the unseemly legends of a popular mythology, he casts his shadow and is dimly discerned in the ode or epic as in troubled water or fantastic dreams. All that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful, all that is beneficent, be it great or small, be it perfect or fragmentary, natural as well as supernatural, moral as well as material, comes from him. Truly, then, everything does hang on the axile tree. Thank you very much.